And so today, at long last, we come to the beginning of our study of the great book of Romans. And all the people said, Of Paul's 13 letters, Romans is not the chronological first, but it is universally considered the most important of all his letters. And that explains why it holds first place in the order of his letters in the New Testament. Romans is clearly the greatest and most comprehensive New Testament book in the Bible. And some have declared it to be the greatest letter ever written. It stands in the Bible as the Mount Everest of New Testament books. And if you don't already love the book of Romans, I hope you will before we finish our study, however many years from now that may be. I did, not to scare you, but uh, I, I listened to uh, Sinclair Ferguson this week, and he just in passing said that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached Romans for 16 years. Okay, there's only 16 chapters. 16 years and then died before he finished. I want to do it a little faster than that and with different results. Why should you love Romans? Why should you love Romans? If we could bring Luther back from the dead, he would tell us. And I think this is what he would say because this is what he said. In his commentary on Romans, he writes, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, are you kidding me? But occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. End quote. Beloved, I want to study the book of Romans with you, not merely because I think it will be a stimulating exercise to the mind, but I believe it will also be a feast for the soul. My goal this morning is to offer you an overview of the entire 16-chapter letter but I don't want to do it merely as a theological exercise or as some kind of academic data dump, but rather as a message from the Lord who created you, who sustains you, who loves you, and to whom we are all accountable. Paul wants you to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be changed by it, to learn how to live in the light of it and to do so for the glory of God and for your own eternal joy. And so let's begin today in the great and mighty book of Romans. So let's begin as we always begin with prayer. Lord, we praise you this morning. I feel almost like Roman, uh, like Moses on Mount Sinai, standing before this great peak 
of divine truth, fearful that, that I may make a mistake or insert my own ideas when what your people need is to hear from you. So, Lord, we pray that the Spirit in the Word would have sway over our hearts. I pray especially, Father, this morning, for those who are hearing my voice right now, who don't know you, they've never wanted to know you, really. Who knows why they're listening, except that your Spirit has brought them to this place or tuned in on Internet. Father, would you send your Spirit to give life to their dead hearts, and to cause them to be born again to a living hope, and do it in such a way that perhaps nobody will be more surprised than they are. Lord, would you do that, and would you reveal to us something of the glory of Christ and his gospel, and how we also tend to fall short of it in the ways that we would describe and learn from this text this morning? Father, I pray that you would have your way with us and change us, and cause us to see the glory of Jesus, God the Father, the Spirit, and the Word. Father, change us for your great glory and for our great joy. And we pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. I mean, take a look around. It's, it's everywhere. When I think about our country, it just seems to me that the moral and ethical wheels are falling off the cart and it's not just our country, it's the whole world. The whole world seems to be sinking in the toxic sludge of godlessness and unrighteousness and evil. And it's not just our world, it, it has permeated our schools, our marriages, our workplaces, our kitchens, our bedrooms, our theaters, and, and most frightening of all, it has breached our churches. Before we open the word of God to the first page of the book of Romans, we understand that Paul intends to unpack the theology of the good news. He wants us to understand and fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the great apostle to the Gentiles knows that we will never apprehend the glory of the gospel without first thinking deeply about the darkness that is in our world and the darkness that is in our own hearts. And so I say, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. And it's bigger than you ever imagined it to be. What is our problem? What is your problem? Well, some of you think you're sitting next to your problem. And some of you think your employer is the problem, or your child is the problem, or your bank account is your problem, or your addiction is your problem. And those may be real difficulties that need to be addressed. But I'm here to tell you this morning that until you address the ultimate problem, you will never experience real and lasting change at the level of your practical and personal struggles. 
you got to solve this problem first. Believe me, Paul wants to address the vexing, stubborn difficulties of your everyday life. Indeed, it is the Apostle Paul himself who teaches us that the Word of God is sufficient for every need of the soul. But there is a massive problem that must be tackled first. Namely, and here's the problem, how do I escape the awesome and holy wrath of God? How do you escape the awesome and holy wrath of God? Believe it or not, this is where the gospel begins. You have a problem. You have a problem that infinitely transcends all other problems in your life. And so this morning, I want to talk about the problem. Can we talk about the problem? God is going to talk to you about the problem this morning. The only question is, will you listen? Will you listen? Okay, so let's, number one, let's talk about man's biggest problem. The biggest problem in the history of the universe, according to Romans 1.18, is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and note the next word, and unrighteousness of men. Unrighteousness is the word. Just write it in your notes. Unrighteousness. This is going to be key to the whole study today. And Paul addresses this problem in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Now, I told you we're going to cover all 16 chapters. I just gave you a hint. This is the first three. We're going to take it in big chunks. But I'm going to focus mainly on these first three chapters this morning. And this may strike you as, a very, as not a very frightening prospect, the wrath of God. After all, you're a good person, right? You work hard, you're kind to people, you've made personal sacrifices for the well-being of your family and your neighbors. You love your children, you obey the law. Maybe you've been married for a while. There may be people who deserve the wrath of God, but surely not me. Some of you are thinking that, or at least feeling it, even if your mind hasn't put it in words yet. You're thinking, this sermon has nothing to do with me. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. But you can only hold that perspective, that talk about the wrath of God doesn't apply to me. You can only hold on to that thin hope until you read in God's word statements like this, Romans if you have your Bible open, it should be open to Romans chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the first verse. The second one is tied to it, although it's several chapters later. Romans 6, 23. Maybe turn a page or two over. And here's what the beginning of that verse says. The wages of sin is death. So get the connection. All have sinned first. Second, the wages of sin is death. That's the problem. Let's think about that first verse. What does it mean that all have sinned? 
and fall short of the glory of God. This is an important verse because it helps us define sin. You see, sin is not primarily about bad things you do to other people or the bad things other people do to you. Sin, listen carefully, sin is primarily against God. Always. doesn't matter what the sin is. It is always primarily against God. It has something to do, listen carefully, has something to do with the glory of God. Sin is about falling short of the glory of God. Now, if we look carefully in our study, we would discover that the term fall short means something different than you might think it means. The word actually means to lack. Lack as in the sense of, I don't have it. So in what sense do we not have the glory of God? Well, that's a good question. The idea here is not that you were, you had a bow and arrow and you were shooting at the glory of God and you were doing your best. You kept making corrections and every time, despite your best efforts, you missed. That's what it sounds like. That's not what he means. What Paul means when he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is this. Not that you tried to hit the glory of God, but that it was offered to you and you didn't want it. You could have had the glory of God and you didn't want it. Even now, you are sitting here listening wherever you are and you still don't want the glory of God. Right now, you don't want the glory of God complicating your life. You don't want the glory of God messing up your relationship with your girlfriend or your college buddies on the weekend. You don't want the glory of God messing with how you choose to deal with the pain in your life. You don't want the glory of God. You don't want the glory of God. In that sense, you fall short of it. What I want you to hear is that there is a willfulness about this. You weren't aiming at the glory of God. You had neither bow nor arrow. It was offered to you, but you didn't want it. But as I'm walking through this with you, you may be thinking, and this doesn't make any sense to me yet because I don't know what the glory of God is. And that's what I thought this week too. So let's talk about what is meant by the glory of God? What does it mean when Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? It, it, there's something about this, this glory that we don't want. Well, what is the glory of God? In this context, I believe the glory of God represents nothing less than the person of God and the presence of God. Now, if we could just for a moment take a leap back into the Old Testament, Moses in the wilderness, that pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, you know what that was called? It was called the presence of God. It was called the Shekinah of God. 
And Paul is not making that argument, but what I want you to see here is, though there are different definitions of the glory of God, like ascribing the glory of God or his inherent glory of God, he's talking about the person of God himself, the person and presence of God. Paul is saying that you are a sinner and that the sin of greatest concern is that you don't want God. You don't want God. Listen, if everybody in our city wanted God, we wouldn't have enough room in this building. We wouldn't have enough room in the stadium. Why isn't the Dallas Cowboys Stadium filled with people who are coming there to hear the word preached because they want God? Because they don't want God. There's no line outside our doors this morning of people wanting to get in and because they love God. And by the way, this is consistent with what Jesus taught, John 3, 19. And this is the judgment, John says. The light has come into the world, and the people, listen carefully, the people loved, what? Darkness rather than light. It's, it's about what you love. It's about what you desire. It's about what you cherish. They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus, the Son of God, offered himself to sinners as the light, but they didn't want it. They preferred darkness. Oh, you would never say that out loud. You'd probably never even say it to yourself. But the fact is that you don't treasure God. You don't love God. You don't delight in God? This is what Paul is saying. Paul is explaining the gospel. He's explaining that we have a serious problem, and this is the problem. The wrath of God is revealed against men because they don't want God. Even now, some of you you think about the holy presence of God in reasonable proximity to you, the whole thing makes you uncomfortable. His commands provoke you to flee. You don't want him telling you how to live. You want him to stay out of your bank account and your bedroom and your leisure time and your TV watching and your YouTube surfing and your Instagramming and all of that stuff. How much of that would cease if your Lord walked into the room. To be sure, you like the idea of a God who gives you good things and blesses you and provides for you what you want. You may even look forward to heaven because you have a skewed view of what that's going to be like. And to be honest, if, if you were truly honest, Thinking about going to heaven, if you were to arrive there and discover that the God of the Bible is there, you would think this is going to be a really uncomfortable eternity. You see, your biggest problem is that you could have had a personal, thriving relationship with the Almighty God, but you keep Him at a safe di distance. And you flatter yourself that you are 
okay with God and that he is okay with you. You have, you have buried him under a veritable avalanche of other things you love more than him. Paul confirms this earlier in chapter 1, verse 23. Look at that, chapter 1, verse 23, where he explains that the reason the wrath of God is revealed against people is because, watch this, they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. What idols, you may ask? Well, we probably don't have to rehearse that because Randy did a fantastic job in two of his sermons on Isaiah 40, unpacking what it means to worship idols. But just briefly, anything you love and cherish more than God, over God, instead of God, is an idol. Maybe money is what you love more than God, or sex is what you love more than God, or entertainment is what you love more than God, or friendship is what you love more than God, or a promotion at work is what you love more than God, as is manifest by the, by the conniving you've done to get that, whatever it is. And notice that this is written in the present tense. In other words, you're doing it right now. When you leave this place, you'll be doing it. When you go to work, you'll be doing it. I suspect some of you are even uncomfortable with this sermon right now. You want to turn it off, or if you're here in one of these rooms, you may want to get up and, and leave, but you would be too embarrassed to do so now because I just called you out. <laughs> and so Paul says, all have sinned and willfully lack the glory of God. And this is what de defines a lost sinner. They don't prize what is most precious. They don't love what is most lovely. They aren't awed by that which is most awesome. Their lives seem unaffected by the glory of God, unaffected by the word of God, unaffected by the people of God, and unaffected by the spirit of God. They have a form of religion, but it lacks any power. It's not changing their life. It's not making them look like Jesus. And friends, the Bible repeatedly portrays the substance of idolatry and sin as forsaking God. And in Jeremiah, it's forsaking God, who is the fountain of living water, in favor of broken cisterns that can hold no water. But I should tell you, these realities are not unique to you. Your first parents, Adam and Eve, did the same thing when they were in the garden. When they rejected God's counsel, ate what was forbidden, hid themselves. Why, why, why did they hide themselves? Because they have fallen short of the glory of God. They didn't want to be near him. They didn't want him being near them. And so they hid as if one could hide from God. In that moment of rebellion, they believed a lie that their own appetite, appetites and impulses were a better guide than God. And that's what every man, woman, and child is hardwired to believe from birth. And that's why Paul is so emphatic when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul argues that the godless are under God's wrath because of this. In chapter 2, he says, he argues that the religious, namely the Jews, are under God's wrath because of this. And in chapter 3, he concludes, therefore, that if all the godless Gentiles are under this and all of the godless Jews are under this, that's all. That's everybody. There isn't another category. None of them want the person and presence of God. Not unless something changes in their hearts. Now let me speak to the children for just a minute. If you are under 10 years old, I want you to raise your hand. If you're under 10 years old, good, I see that. Thank you, Abram, there's one. Good. So, all of you, let me ask you this question. And those of you down in Fellowship Hall, you're watching, listening. How, how, children, how, how did your parents train you to be disobedient? What did they do to train you to disobey your mom and dad? Did they promise, son, if you disobey me during the service, I'll take you out to ice cream. If you disobey mommy and daddy, when we get home, we're going to give you a treat. And you say, that's ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? Because even a child knows their mom and dad didn't teach them. They knew how to be disobedient. They knew how to sin from birth. And we were all born with this. But the problem gets worse. If, if we jump ahead to chapter 6, verse 23 again, Paul takes it a step further. So we looked at Romans 3.23. Now, Romans 6.23, Paul takes it a step further by revealing the consequence of sin. Paul says that the consequence of men and women avoiding God, distancing themselves from God, running from God, hating God, not loving God, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What is death? The kind of death that Paul is speaking of here is a separation from the life-giving, joy-producing, Christ-exalting goodness of God forever. So don't be shocked when you hear the apostle declare that the penalty for sin is death. People who don't desire the presence of God now will one day experience the fullness of their desire later. In other words, they will get what they want and be separated from God forever. They will be separated from the presence and the person of God. But perhaps the reason they don't want God is that they have a wrong idea of what that will be like. I think the best way to describe this is just for a moment to think of what Jesus experienced on the cross. Forsaken of God, distance from God, bearing the guilt of sin, plunged into darkness, racked with unrelenting pain, 
I mean, the whole thing sounds strangely like the Bible's description of hell. And Jesus bore all of this, the full measure of the wrath of God, and he bore it all alone. Except it wasn't his sin. It was ours. To be separated from God forever in hell just means you are separated with, from God with all of your sin intact and all of your guilt unrelented. And at the end, on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken. He was separated from God. But you know what? No one in hell will ever ask that question, why have you forsaken me? Every soul in hell will be excruciatingly aware that their eternal separation from God is exactly what they had always wanted. Why do you sin? Because you want to. It's the only reason. In that God-forsaken place, Romans chapter 2, verse 8 says, there will be wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. Elsewhere in Scripture, it is described as a place of outer darkness where there is relentless weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Oh, my friend, hear the word of God. The wages of sin is death. It is a living death. Beloved, this is the wrath of God. You say, well, all I want is the assurance that I don't have to be near him. That in itself will be your undoing. It will be death for you. And the only thing holding you back right now from falling into the righteous wrath of God is his sovereign mercy. You have no promise that you will live another day or another hour. You may ask, but wait, I mean, isn't there any hope? What do I need to avert the righteous wrath of God? Well, this is exactly where Paul takes us. This is exactly where Paul takes us. He leads us from Man's biggest problem to the sinner's greatest need. The sinner's greatest need. Now, what would a sinner need to be saved from the holy wrath of Almighty God? What does he need? In a word, he would need, and I asked you to write this down earlier, righteousness. Actually, I think I had you write down unrighteousness, but this is the root. Righteousness. Listen to the sobering words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 20. Okay, so this is Jesus. So you can't say, well, yeah, this is Paul, but, but not Jesus. No, no, no. This is Paul quoting Jesus. Actually, this is me quoting Jesus in the context of talking about Paul, but whatever. <laughs> Matthew 5, 20. These are Jesus' words. I tell you, listen carefully. I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You say, okay, that's a scary thought. 
Can we quantify that? How righteous is more righteous than the Pharisees? Very last verse of Matthew 5. This is verse 48, Matthew 5. Jesus answers that question and he says this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which very simply just means you got to be as good as God. you got to be as righteous as Christ is righteous. You see, friends, what you need is for God to think about you not as unrighteous sinners, but as one who is righteous as God is righteous. But where are you going to get that? Where can you get that kind of righteousness? I mean, it's too late to start being good. I mean, you know your own heart. You were probably bad today. If you haven't, you will. Where can you get that kind of righteousness? It's too late to start. The Jews thought they could attain it by diligently keeping the law of God. That's why they added laws to the laws that God gave. They just wanted to stay away from the laws that God gave, so they gave themselves more laws, thinking that they would really be righteous. And and the Lord says, look, that, that doesn't work. It requires a greater righteousness. But Paul declares in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Then quoting, this is Romans 3.10, quoting from the Old Testament, Paul writes this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. You know what that means? Can we just put a little parenthesis here? What does it mean no one seeks for God? I want to submit to you that what he means is no one wants God. You're not seeking a relationship with him. Forget about seeker service. No one is seeking him. All have turned aside, Paul says. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. In other words, this is the universal state of all humanity. We don't want God in our lives. We want him to keep away. This is the most glorious gift God could have given you, himself, and you have rejected it. According to scripture, no one is capable of meeting God's standard of righteousness. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are in the same predicament. There is a righteousness you desperately need, you don't have, and you cannot earn. This is a seriously hopeless situation. The first three chapters of Romans reveals man's biggest problem, the sinner's greatest need, and just when, we, just when it appears like all hope is lost which is exactly where Paul wants you. He reveals, number three, God's saving solution. He doesn't want you to stay in that state of looking forward only to the wrath of God, which is coming. 
Rather, he wants you to embrace the solution. What is God's solution to man's biggest problem and the sinner's greatest need? Well, Paul offers a magnificent answer to that. God's solution is what Paul calls justification. I've already mentioned it once in the previous text. Justification. So what is meant by justification? Well, to be justified is to be declared righteous. It's not to be made righteous. There's a major difference between, uh, dare I say, evangelical Christians and the Roman Catholic Church. Because from the mistranslated Latin, the Roman Catholic Church holds to what is called justificare, which means to make righteous. But the Greek word is dikaiosune, which means to declare righteous. We need God to declare us righteous. The Moody Handbook of Theology defines justification like this. It is a legal act wherein God pronounces that the believing sinner has been credited with all the virtues of Christ. Let me say it again. It is an act wherein God promises the believing sinner that he has been credited with all the virtues of Christ. And that's because the believing sinner has been united to Christ. In other words, God reckons you as perfect, even as Jesus is perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is, he declares that you are righteous in his sight. He thinks of you now as righteous, And the million-dollar question then is, how can I obtain God's justification? How can I be reconciled to God? Well, I want you to turn to Romans 3, 24 and 25. And we should all memorize this this week. The very beginning of it, it actually starts with 23, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, but notice how he jumps to the gospel, and are justified, now listen to these key phrases, we're going to walk through them one by one, but I want you to hear them first, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now there's a lot there. But it is so compressed, and I knew by this time in the sermon I'd be running out of time. So we're just going to take this one verse. And Paul set it up for us. All of the key components are right here. And every phrase of it is precious to us. Every phrase of it is cherished by us. Oh, beloved, think carefully about what I'm going to address The Christian church has cherished these truths for more than 2,000 years. It's what makes you a Christian thinking person. First of all, justified. Justified is a word that is cherished because it means the solution to my unrighteousness is that God declares me legally righteous in his sight despite the fact that I am so unrighteous. Charles Spurgeon once told his church, 
Christians are so righteous in Jesus Christ that they are more righteous than Adam was before he fell. For he had but a creature righteousness, and they, that is Christians, have the righteousness of their creator. By his grace is a cherished phrase because it means there is something else in the heart of God towards sinners besides wrath. His justice requires payment for the crime, but his grace offers us what we don't deserve. Our sins, they are many. Say it with me. His mercy is more. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. The grace of God shields us from the wrath of God. And the grace of God is Jesus. As a gift is a cherished phrase because it means that while you you can't earn righteousness, you can't work for it, you can't deserve it, but you can receive it. You can receive it if you want it. Robert Mounts rightly observes that while we want to earn, God will only give. We want to earn, God will only give. You know why? Because the glory is always to the giver. And God is always the giver. Even when we serve him, even when we sacrifice for him, all of it is from him. He's always the giver. He gets all the glory. That's why Paul says later in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We want to earn. God will only give. God's way of providing righteousness has nothing to do with human performance. It is apart from the law. Through the redemption is a cherished phrase because it means my sins have been paid for, not by me, but by Jesus. And notice we haven't mentioned the cross. It's interesting, I searched in about five different versions and the word cross is nowhere to be found in the book of Romans. Paul assumes you already know that. You already know that what happened on the cross is your forgiveness was paid for. What we argue about is what the Jews and the Gentiles in his day were arguing about was, yeah, but where do we get righteousness? Because so many were saying you get it by keeping the law. Paul is refuting that. It is not. This is a cherished phrase because it means my sins have been paid for, not by me, but by Jesus We sang the song just a few minutes ago, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. That is in Christ Jesus is the cherished phrase because it tells us that all of this is ours because God has united us with his son. This righteousness is not my own. It is Christ's righteousness. And Romans will teach us as we go along that we fly to Christ for righteousness. The the answer to the question of where do we get righteousness is answered by Paul. Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's not my obedience to the law. It's Christ's fulfillment of the law. It's not my dying for my sins. It's Christ dying for my sins. 
And then, whom God displayed publicly is a cherished phrase because it tells us that what Jesus did for us is history. It took place in the open. In the Old Testament, God described how he would provide both forgiveness and righteousness one day. And then he did it for the world to see. It's not some kind of Eastern mythology. It really happened, and there were many witnesses who attested to his death and resurrection. In fact, they saw him alive, they saw him dead, and they saw him risen. And then as a propitiation, it's a great word, isn't it? And that just warm your heart? It will here in a second. Propitiation is a cherished word because it points to the removal of wrath. And that's man's biggest problem. It is the removal of wrath. All of us live under the wrath of God. But in Christ, God's wrath is satisfied. You remember, you remember the, the Pharisee and the publican who were both at the temple? And the Pharisee was saying, God, I thank you for all the righteousness that I've done. Thank you for helping me be righteous. And this poor, lowly tax collector, this publican, could not even lift his head toward the sky, but could only declare, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. Rewind the tape a little bit. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In the Greek, it's this. God, be propitiated toward me. Where was he? In the temple. What was happening? The lambs were being slaughtered. This is propitiation. By the death of Christ, the wrath of God has been satisfied for all who will believe. All the punishment you deserve has been poured out in fullest measure upon him. And then, in his blood is a cherished phrase because it tells us what Jesus did. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But that's why Jesus laid his life down on the cross. He died as our substitute. His blood instead of ours. And then through faith is a cherished phrase because it tells how sinners like you and me can become the beneficiaries of all that God has done for us in Jesus. The only way to get it is to receive it by faith. By faith. And by faith alone. Well, in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul reveals man's biggest problem, the sinner's greatest need, God's saving solution, and then finally, Christ's glorious invitation. Oh, my friend, is this not a glorious good news? Your biggest problem finds its eternal resolution in the person and presence of the one you've been running from your whole life. He loves you. He did this for you. For his glory, yes. But his glory in your salvation. No wonder Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. 
I'm not ashamed. How could you be ashamed? Well, my friend, do you believe the gospel? Today, will you humble yourself before God and confess that you have nothing to offer him but your sin? Will you ask him to forgive your sin and grant you the saving righteousness you can only receive by faith in Christ? If you come to him, he will not turn you away. In fact, the invitation that you're hearing from me right now is actually from him. Because it is Jesus who said, come to me, all of you who are weary and are burdened with a heavy load, and I will give you what? Rest, salvation, eternal life. I plead with you to receive this salvation. And can I just be bold with you for a second? You have now heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one. You have heard the gospel. Do not harden your heart. Come to him. Now, briefly, as for the rest of Romans, <laughs> let me just fly through this very quickly. Uh, chapter 4, we didn't talk about, but it's part of chapters 1 through 3. goes actually through verse uh, uh, chapter 4 because Paul argues in chapter 4 that Abraham was justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. And so the Jews may say, what, what, Abraham was circumcised, and Paul will say he was justified first. Just the clear teaching out of the book of Genesis. And this is amazing in chapter 4, when Paul says this, uh, Paul argues that Abraham was justified by faith even before the law was given. And Paul writes this, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, so I'm not going to talk about it a lot here except to say this. Notice how Paul describes God. The name he gives to God here is him who justifies the ungodly. Are you ungodly? You look at your own heart and you're considering these things and, and you're saying, I'm in trouble. You're the only kind of person the gospel works for. Because this God is the God who justifies the ungodly. Chapters 5 through 8, God's righteousness brings peace with God, along, that's peace with God, not a sense of peace, but reconciliation peace with God, with magnificent assurance. And I can't wait to dive into chapters 5 and 6 and talk about the fact that sin is not sovereign, and you are no longer mastered by sin. The righteousness of Christ causes you to become more and more like Christ. This is also the section where we read, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. I'm just pulling some of my favorite scriptures out of these chapters. And in light of this magnificent security and hope, Paul asks, are we then free to sin? And he will answer, of course not. Don't be foolish. Why would you go back to that slavery? And then, he, rhetorically, he asks, well, then should we be... Focus on being good law keepers, that's legalism. 
as opposed to licentiousness. And he says, may it never be. May it never be. Anathema. Well, rather, what should we do? And the answer in Romans 8 is walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And then chapters 9 through 11, Paul addresses God's sovereign election and Israel's place in redemptive history and how Israel's rejection of the Messiah has opened the door for the Gentiles and how the God of righteousness will one day bring about Israel's salvation. All Israel will be saved by grace through faith because of Christ. And then Paul ends that section with a doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should repay him for from him? Listen carefully. For from him. Say it with me. And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And then chapters 12 through 14, Paul exhorts those who have already embraced the gospel on how God's righteousness should affect the way we live today. You know what the reformers said? The reformers declared that the faith that saves is faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. And what they meant by that was, if you have come to Christ by faith alone and received this salvation, the Holy Spirit moves into your life and you begin to change. You begin to love God's word, God's people, God's precepts, God's church, God's spirit. And you are changed by it. No fruit, no life. And so Paul teaches us about practical things like submission to authorities in chapter 14, loving one another, which is a really important deal because here we have Jews and Gentiles together in, in one church. How did that happen? It's a really interesting story. Can't wait to talk to you about that. And then in chapter 15 and 16, Paul lays out his plan for taking the gospel of God's righteousness where it's never been proclaimed, specifically Spain. Isn't that interesting? Paul wants to go to Spain. This is why he's going to Rome. He wants Rome to be, the Roman church, to be his home base, to send him to Spain to take the gospel there. We don't know if he ever made it, but that was his ambition. And then the final chapter, the final chapter is really beautiful. If I were to say, hey, let's sit down. I want you to, I want you to name 28 people in over at... Um, Christ Fellowship Bible Church. Could you name 28 people? Paul has never been to Rome. He names 28 of them. He talks about his love for them, the work that he's doing, that, that they're doing, and how, how blessed he is to hear about their faithfulness. And I can't wait to get to that chapter two. There's so much there. And I've left out, I've left out so, so much. And so I hope this whets your appetite a little bit. This is going to be a marvelous study. I hope you'll pray for me as I study and come prepared to preach the word in the future. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and give you thanks for this 
entrance into this great book. We ask you, Father, to use it to change us, help us love Christ more, and live for him more boldly, and to serve one another more sacrificially. Lord, we need your spirit for that to happen. And I know that even as we've talked a lot about salvation this morning, salvation is not merely a decision, it is a work of God. And as we'll see next week, this is the gospel of God. And we know that every sinner is dependent on you to change their heart and give them the desire that they lack. And so, oh, Father, I plead with you, change them and change all of us. Make us more lovers of Christ than we've ever been and followers of Christ in the sense of living for him. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.